Well, it's great to be with you, and I invite you to open your Bibles if you're watching online or if you'd like to uh, join here and do the same uh, to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at a couple passages, uh, well, one passage in two chunks uh, this morning in Philippians 2. Have you ever seen an illusion? Certainly you've seen an illusion before or an illusionist. Um, They're often called magicians, but they don't really do magic. They do um, illusions. They create optical illusions with a sleight of hand. Um, I'm not an illusionist, but we do have one in our, in our uh, congregation, uh, actually on our staff. She goes by the name of Miss Jen. If you've ever seen or watched her children's messages, she ends each message with uh, an object lesson, and many of those are illusions for the kids, and, uh, and they're super fun. One of them that I really liked was um, she had her cell phone, and she had a quarter in her hand, and she could go like this, and she dropped the cell phone, or the quarter, into the cell phone, and it was bouncing around in the screen uh, like, 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 like you would, but it wasn't actually real, of course. It was just an illusion. We all know about illusions. In her book, uh, Waiting for God, the great French philosopher Simone Weil says that, uh, that every human being lives in an illusion. And the great illusion of humankind is that we think that we are the center of the world. In fact, this was actually literally true all the way up until Copernicus set us straight when we thought the wor- that, that earth was the center of the universe. And Simone Weil says that we, we tend to do this in our imagination with as individuals, as persons in the universe. But the truth and the reality is, of course, that, uh, that we are all points in the world are equal and true um, centers, little centers, but the real, true, and real center is God. And so the journey of the Christian is to learn to, to let go of the illusion, to learn to uh, give up that imaginary place or position as the center, and to do so is to awaken to reality, to awaken to what is real, and to awaken to, she says, our love of our neighbor. Well, this is precisely what I think Paul is trying to help the Philippians grow with in their life with God and in their relationship with God, to see and to embody in their own life together that Jesus Christ is the center of them individually as persons, the center of their community, and really the center of the entire universe. So Paul, if you've been following along in the last couple of weeks, we're in a series walking through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And if you remember, um, Paul planted this church. He visited there, and on the Sabbath day, he went down by the river, and he gathered and prayed with the women who were there and, uh, and started this beloved community. Um, about 10 years after he left, we think, he, as he was in prison towards the end of his life, probably in Rome, he writes this letter 
and has it sent back to the church. And it's a letter that is intended to encourage them in their faith. He has a wonderful, beloved kind of relationship with this group. He loves them. They love him. They've supported him. They partner together in the work of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, but now in chapter 2, as we enter into chapter 2, there are some controversies or some issues in the church that Paul is going to address. He doesn't address them in the most direct way like he does, for example, with the church in Corinth and in all of their conflicts, but he addresses them by grounding them in the gospel. Uh, so what were some of the controversies or some of the issues in the Philippian church? What were they dealing with? Well, one possibility, we don't know exactly because Paul's not super clear about that. One possibility is that there may have been polarization around these two women who worked faithfully with Paul and were very close with him, um, but then after some time went on, they began to have odds, become at odds with one another. And you can read about that in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. So that's one possibility that he's trying to help with that conflict. Another possibility could have been generated by uh, other preachers who are proclaiming and, and trying to bring Jewish law and to enforce Jewish law onto the Gentile believers, of which Paul lashes out on in the next chapter, in, verse, in chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3. Or it could be Paul himself, um, that some in the community feel as though they're part of his inner circle and they have favor with him while others feel a little more left out, like they're not part of the cool club, the Paul cool club. And this is why Paul then makes a point in chapter 1 to, to say he prays for all of them, not just some, and that their unity together would complete his joy. So Paul's addressing this issue, whatever it, exactly it may be, because he knows that it's only natural for people when we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict or a discord or when we feel wounded or left out, that it's very natural in those moments to, to cling to yourself and to, to look to your own interests, right? Because you feel like your resources are being taken away from you and so I'm going to better cling to what I have. And you look to your own interests and not to the interests of others. And over time, of course, that leads to a breakdown and a break apart of the community and Paul does not want them to get on that train. And so it's a, it's a thought process and an imagination that Paul is helping them to see. Now remember, in the, and we're just about to get to it, remember in the first chapter, Paul spent like the most of the first chapter encouraging them, affirming them, in fact, in Christ's love and in Christ's promise. He mentions their sharing in the Spirit, and then he writes this in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Why does he begin this chapter with an if then? If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation in love, didn't he just spend the whole first chapter trying to convince them that there is encouragement in Christ, there is consolation in in his love, and there is sharing in the spirit? Well, this is actually a mnemonic device in in the original Greek where um, when you see an if-then, it usually comes with either a positive or a negative assumption in the afterwards. So you could say, if there is any encourage, if then, if there is any encouragement, because there isn't, or if there is any encouragement, because there is. And so that's kind of the assumption of, of this part of the language. Another way of saying it would be for Paul to be saying, since there is encouragement, since there is uh, consolation, since there is sharing in the spirit make my joy complete be of the same mind be of one accord now this doesn't mean to be of the same mind to be of one mind doesn't mean for paul to agree on everything it doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything for paul it means that to have the same intentions, to share in the same spirit, to share in the same need for Christ, to have the same heart and commitment to one another. Don't let discord linger. And then he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, or other translations say vain conceit, which I'll get right back to because it's wonderful um, in our text. And then he goes on to say, consider others better than yourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds a bit of a, like a psychological problem to me. Does this mean, is Paul saying that I need to have a low view of myself, consider others better than myself? Because we know psychologically that if I have a low view of myself, if I think that I'm, I'm no good, if I'm a victim of abuse or something like that, then I'm not going to do anything that's considering others better better. I'm not going to do any, I'm going to cling to myself, right? And I'm going to look down on others. But we know also that if you feel good about yourself, if you have a positive sense of self-esteem, then it's easy to be generous and gracious and loving towards others. So what does it mean? Why does he say consider others better than yourselves? Well, the word better is not a value statement for Paul. It's been a difficult uh, sentence to interpret because it doesn't mean to think badly of yourself and to think someone else more worthy. We know that in Christ we're all created in God's image and we're all in need of God's redemption. Earl Palmer was a wonderful Bible teacher and he said the best way to think about this is to to think of it as, as this. Consider others better than yourselves really means to let others go in front of you in line to let others go in front of you in line. And he gives this wonderful illustration. Let's say, imagine you're going to the supermarket. You're on your way to a picnic, right? And 
And in order to go to the picnic, you, 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 it's really hot out, and so you need to stop at the grocery store to pick up a thing of sunscreen. You only need this one item, this one sunscreen. And so you go into the grocery store, you grab your sunscreen, and you look at the checkout lines. There's, they don't have individual things in these days. This was back when they only had um, you know, lines, uh, and then they had that express lane, right? And so you think, okay, I'm going to go to the express lane because I only have one item. But of course, the express lane is the longest line of all, and it snakes all the way around the grocery store. So you think, I'm not going to go in this express lane. So you go into lane three. There's only one cart in front of you in lane three, but this cart is filled all the way to the brim with groceries. And this person uh, who has you know, about to check out, she has spent uh, the last hour and a half shopping, filling up her grocery cart. Now you can, when you get behind her in line, you can do something, a few things to kind of help your cause out a little bit. This is sort of joking, so don't really do this. But you could, you could look really sad with your, with your bottle of sunscreen, and you can look into her cart, and then you can look at her in the eyes, and then you can look back down at your sad bottle. You can, even, you can even flag your spouse. Don't worry, honey. It'll just be a minute. I'll be right there. And if that person is feeling positive, she might say, you only have one item. Why don't you go ahead of me in line? Now, you're not entitled to go ahead of her in line. It's her right to, go to, to be next in line. But if she's feeling good about herself, she's, she might consider others to put in front of her in line. So this is a, a helpful kind of illustration for this. You don't feel poorly about yourself. If you feel poorly about yourself, you're, you're not going to be thinking about helping others. You're going to be thinking about getting your own needs met, right? And this is exactly how, what we've been asked to do during this whole year, during this pandemic, is to put others in front of us in line. And that's why we've gone through great lengths to wear masks or, and to be distant with one another. What a great challenge, you know, to, to lay down our rights for the sake of, of others. I think it was Tim Keller who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So when I know that I'm loved, I don't have to think about myself all the time. I don't have to try so hard to take from other people and to grab from other because there's an abundance already present. And that leads to the next half of the passage, which is the foundation for all Christian ethics. And it's a wonderful passage starting at verse 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in, Jesus, that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is called the Philippian hymn 
It's also called the Christ hymn. It's also known as the Kenosis hymn. Many scholars believe that the early churches, early believers would have taken this poem out of the letter, extracted it out, and turned it into a song and sang it in worship. We're still looking for evidence of this, but this is the assumption, uh, the hymn of the self-emptying work of Christ, the Christ hymn. And there's a wordplay in here that shows that this is a poem. I think Paul was writing this letter, and God gave him a poem, and he, right in the middle of his letter, wrote this poem out. And we're gonna, I want to show you that it's a poem. And the key to the poem is early on, when he says do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit or from conceit but in humility consider others better than yourselves well what is this word conceit or vain conceit it's from the greek word it's a compound word keno doxa um, so keno comes from the word kenosis and that means empty and doxa is our word for, is the Greek word for glory. We get the word doxology. So vain conceit literally means empty glory. Do nothing out of empty glory. It's an illusion. You're dreaming up some glory that's not really there. Uh, it's, it's an illusion. This isn't a team player who sees himself as part of a team, but sees himself as the center of the, of the world, seeking empty glory. And then he says, instead of seeking empty glory, have the mind of Christ. Well, what was the mind of Christ? And this is when I think the poem comes to Paul's mind. Pay attention to how the poem unfolds because it's going to be kind of uh, a descent and then an ascent. He says, think of Jesus Christ, his mind, who emptied himself. And it, now he uses three words to, to show, we're not quite on that yet, but three words to show his identification with us. And the first is morphe. He was in the form, the morphe of God, the essence of God. He was in the essence of God, the form of God. Jesus Christ wasn't a creation of God. Jesus wasn't the greatest of all the prophets. He was the word who was with God in the beginning who then became flesh. He was the essence of God, and then he took upon himself the morphe, the form of a slave. He was the form of God, and he took upon the form of a slave. Not just a man, not just a human being, but a slave man, a doulos, a slave. Instead of just saying that Jesus Christ came as a real man, he came as a slave man. And you understand that from Plato on, and Aristotle, and, and in those days, and, and throughout many centuries later, and we're still dealing with the problems of this today, that people thought that slaves were subhuman that they were less than human, they, they were uh, a little lower than the humans, and so they could be used for economic purposes, they could be treated like mules or other animals, considered property, and that also meant then that in the Roman Empire that, that the slaves could be executed by their owner, right? The owner could execute his slave if he wanted to, but you couldn't order the execution of a Roman citizen or a free person but a slave was seen as subhuman property. And so that's why Paul very wisely says that he took upon himself the morphe, the essence of a slave. That's an identification with us far below anything we could ever imagine. 
Now, being found in human form, he uses a second word to identify with us. He uses the word homo, which is where we get our word for homo sapien, the great word for being human. He, he became a, a human, a homo, one of us. And being found in human form, then he gave a third uh, word for identification with us, and that is the word schema. And it's where we get our word for schematic or scheme. That he, um, he, so he, he, let's see, he found in human form and, and was born in human likeness. So schema, he looks like us. What is Paul doing? Jesus Christ was the essence of God, became the essence of a slave, became like us as human beings, and even looked like us outwardly. So that means that when people saw Jesus, unlike in, in the film Ben-Hur, they didn't fall back, all taken aback, um, except for maybe at the transfiguration, but the rest of the time, he, he, w- he had the same schema as you and I do. He was so human, you would have wanted to be with him. And to be near him, he was like one of us. Um, he was so real. But not only did Jesus take on the essence of a slave and the essence of a human to share in our experience, but he went to death. Not just any death, because we all die, everybody dies, but he went to the cross. And that's the death of condemnation. There was a Jewish saying in the first century that says, Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Anyone who is going to be spend the night impaled on a tree is cursed. Jesus Christ went to the bottom. Crucifixion was such a horrible form of execution of death in the Roman Empire. No Roman citizen could be crucified. Only slaves and criminals. So, I mean, so if they were the criminal, yeah. Because it was the most degrading form of execution. And a human being's life is just toyed with. In crucifixion. They, they suffer dehydration and they ultimately die of the collapse of the lungs. And some people would hang on Roman crosses for several days, but Jesus, they, they shoved a spear into his side to quicken, to hasten his death. And so he died for six hours, six hours. And if you were here on Good Friday, you remember how powerfully Bree captured that in, in its retelling about his death. And so Jesus Christ not only identified with us in death, after all, we all die, but he died the death of the curse, the death of total humiliation, totally humiliated on our behalf. Now look at how the poem goes on. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. And now he uses the word hyper. We use it in the same way as we do in English. He hyper exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, not not at the name of his title, the Christ, but at the name of Jesus of Nazareth, this person in history, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on earth, under the earth, above the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you can see what he's doing here. It's a perfect Greek poem 
with an amazing play on words. This song that poem wrote up that I think was stirred up in his head by the spirit. I want you to be encouragers to each other. I don't want you to be selfish. I don't want you to be conceited. That word that must have been in his head, kenodoxa. I don't want you to have kenodoxa, but consider Jesus Christ who kenod himself, who emptied himself. What? All the way to the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the doxa of God, to the glory of God. Don't have kenodoxa, but have the mind of Jesus Christ who kenod himself to the doxa of God. Isn't that a great poem? Um, and of course the word glory is one of the greatest words in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's kavod in Hebrew. You remember that from our series. And you remember, and in the New Testament, it's doxa. You remember when Isaiah, it's the exalted presence of God. And when Isaiah found himself before the exalted presence, the kavod of God, he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Um, the substance, the weight of God. So this is a poem. Do not have kenodoxa, but look to the one who kenod himself to the doxa of God. Do you see it? Do you see it? Kenodoxa will destroy you. Just look at movie stars, politicians, celebrity athletes, or whatever, and you can see easily when someone is caught up in kenodoxa. She or he is in for a fall, and everyone who's following that person is going to go down with her. Beware of the lure of kenodoxa, of empty glory. You can't sustain it. You can't keep the air in the balloon. Jesus emptied himself. It's the kenosis hymn. Uh, so what are the implications of this for us? One thing in particular. For Paul, the illustration takes over the entire text. Notice what it shows about St. Paul. Paul cannot speak about any subject without relating it to its source, without relating it to his faith in Jesus Christ. Earlier, he can't talk about his bravery or courage without relating it to Jesus Christ. He can't talk about his suffering and his imprisonment without relating it to Jesus Christ. He can't talk about his life or his death or any subject at all without relating it to Jesus Christ. Christ is the center of our faith. Every single subject in Paul's writing, everywhere, from standing together to reconciling conflict to suffering, no matter the subject, is seen in the context of his source, the hope of Jesus Christ. And Karl Barth refers to this, he calls this the evangelical ethic of the New Testament. By evangelical, he doesn't mean the same thing that the media pundits mean by when he uses the word. By evangelical, Karl Barth means the, the good news of God's initiating act in Jesus Christ for the whole world. For instance, the ethics of the New Testament is not separated or severed from the gospel. It doesn't say, <laughs> oh my goodness, there's me twice at the same time. It's way too many of my voices. It doesn't say, notice how the text doesn't say, now get out there and love each other and you'll all be happier. No, it says, beloved, let us love one another. 
because of Jesus Christ. Therefore, love one another. You are the beloved. Now go and do who you are. Everything that we're about in the world finds its source in the life, death, and resurrection, and hope and promise of Jesus Christ. All of our ethics are grounded here in all of our life. This is what Paul wants to see continue in the church in Philippi. More and more, in increasing measure, that they would continue to awaken to the reality of one another and the reality of the cross as the defining symbol for all of reality by which and through which you see everything else. Simone Weil, and I'll close with this, says, to empty ourselves of our false divinity, to deny ourselves, to give up being the center of the world in imagination, to discern that all points in the world are equally centers and that the true center is outside the world. This is to consent to the rule of mechanical necessity in matter and of free choice at the center of each soul. Such consent is love. The face of this love, which is turned toward thinking persons, is love of our neighbor. The face turned toward matter is love of the order of the world or love of the beauty of the world, which is the same thing. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his witness, for his life, for his writing. Even as it is difficult to parse through his run-on sentences, we know that your Holy Spirit inspired him so greatly. And we wonder if this poem was given to him by you in a moment's time and awakening. But whatever the case may be, we see its centrality in our lives and in our faith. And so we pray that above anything else that you would give us the mind of Christ. Help us to look towards Christ, to find our life in him. Help us to not feel that we have to try so hard to do good, but to meditate on him and so that his living water would fill us and spill over abundantly towards others. Help us to humble ourselves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.